Good morning. What a deep, deep privilege it is to be with you this morning. I'm just curious, how many of you, raise your hand if you're graduating this semester. You are the holy ones because you are still coming to chapel when you have stuff on your plate. Give them a hand. There are, there are three of them, and I want to say something to the three of you. I want to say this to you. First of all, you get it that this is deep well right here. This is deep well water. Bob Lyons was the Greek professor when I was here. On our last day of Greek class, he said, you don't have to lose what you got in this class. There's one simple thing. If you do this every day, you will, you will not only not lose what you've gained in Greek, you will become fluent in Greek. He said, just simply pick up your Greek Testament every day and read a passage. You don't have to interpret it. You don't have to, to do any exegesis. Just read the passage. And if you do that much, you will not only keep what you have, you'll become fluent in Greek. I didn't do that. But... <laughs> But I'll tell you what I have done. I have maintained my connection with Asbury's Chapel for the 17 years since I graduated. And it has fed me deep Wesleyan holiness theology. And it has kept me fluent in the most important language. In a world full of megachurch pastors who are preaching all kinds of craziness, it is really important for you to stay fluent in Wesleyan holiness theology. So when you work out, come on, uh, find, find a message at least once a week. Find some message from chapel and, and listen. Or during your lunch break, tune into the, the live streaming. The live stream, I do it early in the morning. Do that at least once a week so you don't lose what is most important about what you've gotten here. That's just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. When you start, you're on a two-foot by two-foot platform in a tree. You're about, I don't know, 100 feet in the air. Your goal is a tree about 500 feet away on a plat and, and your goal is also a platform that is just as tiny and just as high up as the one where you are now. And all that spans between you and that tree is a thin wire. When you step off the platform, you pray that this remarkably thin wire will hold you while you zip through the trees. You're wearing a harness clipped to a pulley. You rest one hand on the pulley and the other hand holds the strap of the harness and the gear does the work for you. The hardest part is stepping off the platform. The best part is the feeling of relief when all that gear catches you once you step into thin air. The zip line is calibrated. It sort of bends. So when you step off the platform, you pick up speed pretty quickly and you zip along until you begin to approach that large tree on the other side. About halfway across, the line bends back up. So it's sort of naturally calibrated to slow you down. All things being equal, you should be able to slow down enough to hit that platform on the other tree. Now, depending on a bunch of other factors, you may end up going a little bit fast as you approach the tree, and you may want to break a little. You do that by, your hand is in a glove, and you do that by putting your hand in an upside-down C and just touching the line. So do this for me. I'm really hoping this becomes an Asbury gangster symbol. 
All you have to do is touch it. Just a friction of a little contact with that line will slow you down as you approach that extremely large tree that's hurtling toward you. So the whole trick is this, touch, don't grab. Say that with me. Touch, don't grab. Do it with the gangster, the gangster symbol, please. Touch, don't grab. Yeah, this is going to catch on. I'm feeling good about it. So the first time Steve and I went zip lining, on that first line, I got a little nervous on the approach to that tiny little platform landing, and that tree on the other side did seem to be coming way too fast, and so I reached up, and because I can person can get panicky in situations like this, I grabbed and didn't touch. And so, while the rest of my body kept hurtling toward that tree, my hand, arm, and shoulder stayed right in the place where I grabbed the line. And for the rest of the day, my shoulder kept reminding me over and over of the one critical principle in zip lining, which is touch. Oh man, you guys are good. This is going to be good. There was another family zip lining that day, and they had a teenager with them who did the same thing I did. He grabbed the line, and he must have been a little stronger than me because it stopped him cold. So the guide who's there waiting for you at the far platform, he had to shimmy out on the line and get the guy and tow him back in. And bless his heart, he did it again on the next line. <laughs> and on the next line. And so for every line after that, as soon as he stepped off the platform, his mother would yell at him, relax, Jimmy, relax, which I'm sure did anything but. <laughs> so the next time I went zip lining, about a year or so later, while I was still on the platform before I ever stepped into thin air on that first line, I said to myself, don't break, don't do it. Don't grab the line when you get nervous about the approaching tree. Remember how much it hurt last time. Remember Jimmy. And don't grab the line. Touch. Don't grab. That's what my whole brain was saying when I was still standing on the platform, but this weird thing happened. I step off the platform and my brain splits into two halves that begin warring with each other. One half is saying, touch, don't grab. The other half is saying, are you kidding me? That tree is huge, it's immovable, it's coming at you like a freight train. Channel your inner Jimmy, grab the line. And that's the side of my brain that won the argument. And so I grabbed the line again, and I pulled my shoulder again, and when I reached the platform, which I did mercifully without having to be towed in, the guide spoke to me like a child. He said, please don't touch the line, I mean, don't grab the line, okay? I will tell you if you need to break, when you need to break, but if you grab the line, you will end up stranded out there in the middle of the line and I'll have to tow you in. And because he spoke to me like a child, I answered him like a child. I said, I know. <laughs> because I do know. But for some reason, when I'm out there hanging literally by a thread, I couldn't trust what I know and what he knows and what everybody who's ever done this knows. I know, but I still put the brakes on. And this thing I do in the air with zip lines, 
I've done so often in my ministry and with my calls. Out of fear, I put the brakes on. I don't trust what has been so obviously calibrated for my good. Now, this is just sheer confession right here for a ridiculous amount of my ministry. I have allowed the voice of fear to war within me with the voice of the Holy Spirit, and it has too often left me hanging between two worlds. And fear is what creates that war within me, and where there is war, there is death. Brothers and sisters in Christ, fear breeds death. So this is what I've come to tell you today. I've come to tell you that fear breeds death. And somehow that lesson from the zip line has become for me a sort of prescription for killing that spirit of fear. Touch, don't grab. Which is another way for me of talking about intimacy and authority. I have become obsessed with staying in touch with the Father, recognizing that my authority comes from Him. Authority isn't something I can grab for myself or generate within myself. Authority comes from intimate contact with the Father. And if intimacy is the conversation with God on the platform that speaks truth and confidence into our lives, then authority is trusting that the line we step out into is calibrated for our good. Fruitfulness comes if I ride all the way out without putting the brakes on. So listen to me. Fear breeds death. I really want you to write this down. Can I ask you to write this down? Especially the three seniors. I want you to write this down. Fear breeds death. But intimacy breeds authority. Authority breeds power. I'm not talking about the world's kind of power. I'm talking about the power that comes upon you when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you are become the, his witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That kind of power. Intimacy breeds authority. Authority breeds power. Power breeds fruitfulness. And fruitfulness breeds glory for God. I absolutely believe this. That intimacy and authority are the difference between life and death in ministry. And so if you have your Bible, I want to ask you if you would define Exodus 33. And if you're the kind that jots stuff in the margins, somewhere in the verse, in the vicinity of verse 7, jot down the place of intimacy. Somewhere around verse 14, write the promise of intimacy. Somewhere around verse 16, write the point of authority. And then at verse 18, write the prayer of intimacy. Let's start with the place of intimacy, verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord, underline that 
peace. Everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp, which is so cool to me because the Bible, in the Bible, outside the camp is where you find people with contagious diseases. And outside the camp is where you find your enemies. Further on in the story of God, people get crucified out there beyond the walls. The outer court of the temple was for women and messed up people, which, no, are not the same thing, okay? And I'm sure that is not the reason Moses picked up his tent and took it outside the camp, but I love that he met God in the same place where God met us the day he proved his love for us. Outside the camp, where the sinners and the broken people are. And speaking of sinners and broken people, seminary can have a funny effect on people, can it? We get inside these walls and we read so much about the Father and we write so much about Jesus and we talk so much about the Holy Spirit and in the middle of all that we can actually develop a kind of numbness toward the reality of Him. That same thing can happen in ministry. I know it doesn't happen to y'all, but it happens to people you know, doesn't it? I can tell you it has happened that way for me more than once over the years. I get so caught up in the work of it that I lose sight of the God over it. And the antidote I've discovered is what Moses models here when he picks up his tent and he takes it outside the walls to seek the Lord. This is where intimacy breeds. It's much like that time on the zip line, on the, on the platform when I'm zip lining. Listen, if I only do that once a year or so, I will never really get used to stepping out into thin air. Those conversations on the platform, they only stick if they are regular conversations. Having a regular discipline of seeking the Lord has become an obsession for me because I have discovered that intimacy is the key to all the rest of it. Listen to this. Richard Foster says, The desperate need today is not for a great number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. I cannot overstress the importance of practicing intimacy. Verse 10 tells you that your ability to worship inspires their ability to worship. And then verse 12, excuse me, verse 11, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, underline that, face to face as a man speaks to a friend. Can you remember the other place in scripture where we find that phrase face to face? It's in that place where Paul, in, at the end of his, his, his poem on love, says, now we see through a mirror dimly, but then we shall see face to face. It's like walking into a dark room from a lighted hallway. It takes a minute for your eyes to adjust. You have to give your eyes time to begin making out the shadows, but if you stay there long enough, you'll see all kinds of things you didn't see when you first walked in. This is why the deep is so important, why we've been called to that place of intimacy first. If we want to carry any authority, any power, any fruitfulness at all, it is so our spiritual eyes can adjust 
So we see things we would never see otherwise. I love how Moses fusses with God. Don't you love the way he talks to God? Let me tell you, you, you earn that right when you spend that much time face to face. Verse 13. Now, therefore, if I've found favor in your sight, Moses says, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. I love this little piece. Consider, too, these are your people. They ain't my people. They're your people. And then God says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. The promise of intimacy. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. I can't add anything to that. So I wonder if you would just close your eyes for a moment. Hear that word. My presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. That is a touch-don't-grab promise. It's God on the platform assuring us that if we step out, he will meet us, he will go with us, he will be our rest. We can ride out this call because he who calls us into the deep can be trusted to carry us across the chasm. Willing to take your tent outside the camp to seek the Lord. That's the promise. My presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. And then Moses asks one of the most profound questions in the Old Testament, maybe the whole Bible. He asks, verse 15, he, uh, he asks, i got to find it. If your presence doesn't go with me, well then don't bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? What a profound question. What exactly makes us, the church, any different from any other well-run nonprofit, or let's be honest, not so well-run nonprofit. If God isn't in it, if we aren't intimately aware of His presence among us, what makes us any different? Brothers and sisters, I have late-breaking news. You are not here to learn how to run a nonprofit. You've been called to step into a great move of the Holy Spirit. A move that will at times defy logic, sometimes even defy gravity. Is it not you're going with us? That we're distinct from all the other crazies in the world? That's literal translation, I think. We recently hired a director of adult discipleship, and that move was absolutely counterintuitive by the world's standards. Heather is her name. She was a poster child for how we would like to see discipleship happen in Mosaic. She's been with us for eight or nine years, but for most of those years, she played hokey pokey with the church. 
She put her fit in when she was clean, but she'd disappear when she was using. Heather was a meth addict. At the end of it, of years of using, she was living in a cheap hotel, cooking and selling meth, way outside the camp. One night she cried out to God. She said, Lord, I can't do this anymore if you don't come for me. Basically, what will make me any different from anybody else? And the Lord answered that prayer. Two days later, he showed up in her hotel room. He was wearing a cop uniform. She was arrested. She got 18 months in what we like to call intensive Bible study, in-depth Bible study. She went through, that's prison, okay? She went, <laughs> y'all are, are losing it. Come on, stay with me, people. She went through a drug rehab program while she was in there, and she was given an award for leadership skills. When she got out, she came home to Mosaic, and she got in our recovery program. She got in a small group. She went through our leadership development program, which we learned through Lay Mobilization Institute, which was taught to us through Asbury Seminary. High-fiving them for that. And uh, so, so, when, so she distinguished herself as a spiritual leader among us. So when it came time for us to hire an adult discipleship director, there was one really obvious choice. So, yeah, our director of adult discipleship is a felon, and we wouldn't have it any other way. And Heather's with us. Would you greet her? Thank you. Thank you. Is it on? <laughs> that's, that's my story. Um, and, and if there was time, I would gladly tell you more. It would only be for God's glory that you knew uh, the extent of the miracle that he, uh, he did in, in me and in my life. Uh, but instead, I'll share two great lessons I've learned in my experience. First, you can probably imagine the struggle I faced inside my own mind as I began to move into ministry. I was coming out of a long life of addiction and dysfunction and um, isolation, and I really didn't feel like I belonged among such great people. And at times I found myself sounding a lot like Moses. <laughs> God, I think you got the wrong person. Who's ever going to listen to me? Don't you know what I've done? Of course you know what I've done. Everybody knows what I've done. Nobody's going to listen to me. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not enough. But then it occurred to me, he, he, did, know, he did know what I had done. And I was invited to that place at the table I was chosen, and I didn't have anything to prove. Yeah. My name was not pulled out of a hat. And suddenly I realized that the only thing standing between me and my call was me. I'm entering ministry with a felony record and a prison sentence. You guys will be entering ministry with a degree. I mean, wow. And when I think about what God is going to do with you, man, I get so excited. I get so excited about it. What a gift. What a gift you will be to the world. It's just amazing. The second lesson is I realized that God is the one guiding my life. God, God, and what God wants, what God has willed is going to happen. 
So I have two choices. I can fight it kicking and screaming and spend another incredible amount of time lost in spinning my wheels, or I can accept the call and all the authority that goes with it. Yes. And, and I mean, what choice is there? I, I take it. I take it. Whatever. So when I lived an act of addiction, I just wanted an ordinary life. I wanted to be a normal person, do normal people things, and have average dreams and normal accomplishments. I just wanted to be normal, whatever that was. But now that I don't live the life of an addict, now that I follow Jesus, I want anything but ordinary. I don't desire average anymore. I want to dream extraordinary dreams and accomplish impossible things in the name of the Lord. I, want to, I don't want to blend in. I want to stand out in the crowd and shout to the world how good God really is. So here I stand, wearing my mantle, clothed in authority on high, with my invitation in hand. Determined to multiply what God has given me charge over. And I'm full. My life is full. And nothing could ever be as satisfying as this. Thank you. among you so you don't get some false idea that her story is different from your story or my story because at some point we all have to trust that God not our gifts God is our authority God I can tell you from way too much experience that if you don't claim authority over your call, you will end up hanging halfway between secular and sacred, and somebody's going to have to come out there and tow you in. Intimacy breeds authority. Authority breeds power. Power breeds fruitfulness, and fruitfulness breeds glory for the Lord. God tells Moses, this thing you've asked for, I'll do it. I'll go with you. And then in response to that promise, Moses prays the prayer of a hungry person. Please show me your glory. This is what we all want, isn't it? We want to see the glory of the Lord. Amen? We want this. What we, we fantasize about it in our pastor fantasies. We see the glory of the Lord falling down on throngs of people and we want to see mighty healings and countless salvations. Billy Graham is calling us for advice. We just, we want this. We don't, we, we don't remember that glory does not begin with us. It begins, listen to me, it begins when lonely, tired servants of the Lord pick up their tents and take them outside the camp to seek the presence of the Lord while everyone else stands at their doors. Lonely, tired servants have it out with the one being in the universe strong enough to take it. I want you to pick up this prayer of Moses and make it your own. Lord, show me your glory. But you need to understand that prayer comes with a cost. It isn't, first of all, a prayer for glory at all. 
It is first of all a prayer for intimacy. It is a prayer for the deep people. And we won't usually pray this prayer until we are fed up with the, uh, the superficial. Will you stand? Brothers and sisters, do you want to be profoundly aware of his presence? No, I'm asking. Do you want to be profoundly aware of his presence? Do you want to be in touch with him at the deepest possible level? Do you want to think his thoughts, receive his wisdom, live as close to his heart as humanly possible? Do you want to see his glory? Oh, say it like a hungry person. Do you want to see his glory? Yes, Lord. Then practice the presence. And then when His promises go before you, for kingdom's sake, don't break. Intimacy breeds authority. Authority breeds power. Power breeds fruitfulness. Fruitfulness breeds glory. And fruitfulness is the desperate need of the church of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, show us your glory. Holy Spirit, show us your glory. Father, show us your glory. We don't know what we're praying. We don't know the cost. I'm confident we haven't paid it. God, as much as we're able to pray that prayer, we ask you, show us your glory.